Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... That's always been my philosophy actually in business, is start small and then grow as you see some success coming into the door. You know, a lot of people will do the opposite. They'll build it big and hope the money comes. Today you'll meet a guy who came to Australia as a young man with a chartered accountancy qualification under his belt. He immediately fell head over heels in love with Sydney and he spent the last 25 years building one of the most respected funds management firms in Australia, starting from scratch. Today, Anton Taliaferro's Investors Mutual Limited now has over $5 billion in funds that he manages and invests for other people. Taliaferro has a reputation as one of the most astute, successful stock pickers in the country. Enjoy part one of my chat with Anton Taliaferro, co-founder of Investors Mutual, where he reveals his secret sauce and why he fervently sticks to his investing strategy, no matter how volatile the market. Anton Taliaferro, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. It's great to be speaking to you. Thanks, Helen. Thanks for asking me. Well, it's a it's a really interesting time for you because you founded Investors Mutual Limited some 25 years ago. You're now coming to the point where you're about to step back. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to talk about in that 25 years. So I don't want to start at the end. You're about to retire out of your business baby. But For listeners who may not know what you and Investors Mutual does, the very few listeners who don't know what you do, can you fill us in? What is a funds management firm? And uh, just tell us a bit about Investors Mutual. Sure. So um, before Investors Mutual, I worked as a fund manager, which is basically an investment manager. So it's a position where people give you their money to manage on their behalf. And I always specialise in Australian shares, Australian equities. And clearly, obviously, in the last 30 years with the, you know, tremendous growth in super, et cetera, uh, there's been a big need, obviously, for for various fund managers. So, uh, yes, in, I'd worked for different companies as a, as a fund manager, for Perpetual, for Prudential, for BNP, for County. And then in 1998, I decided to set up my own fund mm-hmm. called Investors Mutual, which we started in those days with very little, you know, funds under management. Um and probably three or four employees. And then I guess over 25 years, you know, it, it, it grew quite well. And, you know, it's had ups and downs. And uh, But, yeah, today it's got around $5 billion under management and uh, about 35, 40 employees. And, uh, yeah, you know, quite well established. E- extraordinary, really, what you've achieved in that time. When you think back to when you first came up with this idea that I'm going to back myself, I'm going to go into funds management for myself because you – had been working for some of the biggest ones. Where did that idea spring from? Well, to be honest, um, you know, I'd, I'd worked for a number of large firms for a while and, and you know, large companies, well, most fund managers are owned by banks or insurance companies, you know, and 
they tend to be often quite bureaucratic, um, you know, a bit staid, whatever. And um, what I what I really wanted was to have a sort of a more flatter organization, you know, where I could have more say in in what was going on. That was really the the main driver. So, so what you wanted to be your own boss. Uh, yes, basically, yes. Because as I said, if you, and you work for a large bank or a large insurance company, you know, there's lots of protocols. There's often, uh, you know, people who at those places who run the organizations who don't really understand, you know, investment management that well, because it is quite different to, to banking, for example. Um, and yes, I just wanted to have a, a firm which just focused on, on investment management. So you weren't a stockbroker. You had come through the chartered accountancy route and you got into funds management. Yes, yeah, so I did chartered accounting first in London, actually. I, I qualified with Deloitte. I'm originally from Malta. I went to London to study, uh, qualified as a chartered accountant with Deloitte. And then Deloitte offered me a position here in Sydney back in 1984. Was that as a chartered accountant yes, or yes, in funds? Yes, as, a, as yeah. an auditor. Yeah, yeah, which I didn't like at all. It was very- Far too restrictive oh, for you, I would have thought. Very mundane and very you know, repetitive. And, and when I came to Australia in 1984, you know, the 85, there was the big boom, so to speak. It was, you know, very Huge exciting boom. times. Alan Bond and John Spalvins and Robert Holmes Accord, all you know. All those mm, yep. sometimes nefarious yep. uh, entrepreneurs. And, um, Quintex, what was his name? Christopher oh, Chris, Castle, those Chris characters. Case. Russell Goward, you know. So, oh, yes. So it was all exciting stuff. And um, it's sort of attracted me to it. And, and I started going to the stock exchange to have a look, you know, which was down at the in Bond Street where yep. the chalkies were yes. running around with the chalk. And then I happened to enroll in a course, the Securities Institute course of Australia. Uh, and one of the subjects I did was applied portfolio management, which is where these different various fund managers, you know, the guy from NRMA, the guy from Clayton Robart came every week to tell you how they manage money. I thought, wow, is that a job? Is that, is, is, is that someone, a real job? Something does someone you get actually paid pay for? you to, yeah. to you know, look after people's money? And that's what I thought, wow, that would be a wonderful thing. Because by then I'd developed an interest in shares myself. So had you been an investor or had you ever managed anyone else's no, money? No, I hadn't managed anyone else's money. I'd, I'd sort of fiddled around with my own money. You know, I was 25, 27, wow. whatever I was in those days. You that's know, gutsy. 27. Yeah. And, and Tom? Uh, why gutsy, Helen? Well, because you hadn't had any experience. You couldn't say to, say, me, um, oh, I've had lots of experience and I've looked after a lot of people's money and I'm very reliable and I'm very trustworthy. You couldn't tell them anything like that. No, look, I was I was lucky because what happened was there was a – I joined uh, Prudential first doing money market, which was 11 a.m. bills yep. and whatever. And, um, you know, again, it was equities I really wanted to get into, but Prudential didn't really – you know, you, in those days you didn't really move from money market to equities. And then there was a job advertised actually in, in the newspaper for a fixed interest manager at Perpetual. So I thought, oh, that's at least a promotion because I was just a dealer. And I went for the job and the guy sort of looked at my resume and said, oh, I can see you're a child accountant. You've done the diploma course. That's excellent. He said, oh, by the way, the fixed interest manager's position's gone, but the equity manager resigned on Friday. Would you be interested? Of course, I almost fell off my chair. You know, I said wow. yes, I would be interested. But as because you said, that's exactly what you wanted. Well, I, I oh. thought I might get there one day, but they said, "Would you be interested?" Now, again, Perpetual was a much smaller organisation in those days. It was, basically, but it had a very good name. It as, had a good a name. It was a trust company, though. It sort of yeah. looked after you know deceased people's uh, estates, uh, so they didn't have any funds to the public. No. So when I joined, it was more sort of looking after the internal monies, if you like, of Perpetual. 
Um, anyway, I didn't hear from them for a couple of months. After that, I thought, oh, they must have gone for someone. And I saw the job advertised. And then, Lord and behold, two months later, they phoned me again and said, we'd like to talk to you again. And they offered me the role of equities manager wow. at, at Perpetual. Yeah, it I'm was wild. I'm still stunned because you had no experience as an equities no, manager. No, but the guy who recruited me said, look, I'm confident. He said, I'm a child of the county. You're a child of the county. I'm, I'm confident you can do it. It's what we, The way we manage money is very conservative. Yeah, so he you liked just, that grounding yeah, that you yeah. had. He said, I yeah. want you to be conservative. I said, I said, no problem. So, yeah, so that's how it happened. Of course, the people at Prudential were pretty surprised because I was doing money market. And they said, so you've got a new job. I said, yes, we're you going? I'm the equities manager at Perpetual. So yeah. So that, but uh, and then of course the Perpetual uh, that was 1988, uh, just after the 87 crash, and then we launched the Perpetual Industrial Share Fund in 1990, which of course has begun to become you know one of the biggest and most successful funds in Australia. Would you take credit for that, or were you part of a team that said? So Let's what do had this. happened, Helen? I, I, just to, so the the fund had been going since 1966, so it was a very right. old fund, but okay. it was always an internal fund, and it had always done quite well. And it had done well because it was very conservative. Of course, in 1987, when the market crashed and it was the Bondies and Spalvins or whatever, you know, the fund actually didn't hold any of those, so it did really well. And I'd just joined when the fund, it was another couple of guys had managed the fund. So I, I looked at the fund. I, I learned the philosophy. Mm. I actually put together a philosophy because there actually wasn't a written philosophy. So we, I actually had to write down write about down the four criteria, think about, yeah. think about it, because we we're going out to the public to to market, you know, what was already a successful philosophy. So, so I was responsible for, you know, being part of that group of people who, kind of took this very uh, old fund. I think it's the oldest fund ever in Australia, you know, oldest fund in Australia. We had a good track record, solid track record at a time, you know, of, of huge market turmoil, the recession of 89, 90, whatever, the crash had happened in 87. And we took this conservative fund out to the public, you know, and it was it was a, it was a big success. So was that, did that cement in your mind this whole idea of more conservative investing, which I think you would, one hundred percent. Look, you and do again, at fortunately, mutual. and I, I, as I said, a lot, a lot of luck is, you know, they say life is luck, and you make your own luck. I'm not sure, but fortunately, I ended up at a very conservative fund manager, you know, with a very invest, very uh, conservative investment philosophy. I could see, you know, there was a, there were estates at Perpetual which were again twenty, thirty year old estates. And they'd done, you know, very well. And yeah. what did they own? They own sort of Brambles and Amcor and, you know, no, BHP, no bonds. BHP, the banks, you know, no Allen Bonds, no Spalvins, no whatever, no specky no gold stocks, you know. And uh, I thought, wow, that's it. That's 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 how you make money in the stock market. You buy good quality stock yeah. at the right time and you and you hold them for, for a long time. So value investing, I mean, it, the name – value probably says it all. But again, for listeners, do you think you can just elaborate on what is that strategy of investing and, sure. and how does it differ from, say, growth investing these sure. days? So look, um, at the end of the day, you know, a, a share price is a man-made creation. It changes, you know, the sh a share price changes every hour, every day, every week. So a share price is, as I said, it's a man-made creation. Depends on the mood of people, the mood of the market, what's going on in the world, right? But what really matters at the end of the day is the value of the company. Now, what is the underlying value of that company? Because, as I said, the share price will go up and down depending on if there's a war in Iraq or a 
COVID or whatever it is, you know, all sorts of things and oil crisis, interest rates, you know, shares will, share prices will move all over the place. The key then is to try and work out what is the sort of inherent value of that company. And And how do you do that? Well, again, you've got to look at the the earnings stream. You know how volatile where, where did the earnings come from? Are they are they um, repetitive earnings? Are they cyclical earnings? Are they one off earnings? Right. Yeah. So you're trying to yeah. understand the underlying earnings stream, the resilience of the earnings stream, the quality of the earnings stream. Then you say, well, well, this company can always produce around 100 million a year. You know, so it's worth this much. Now you say you think it's worth this much, but obviously the stock market has a different value for it every every week of, and every year. So, so you're judging both those yes, things. Yes, yeah. um, So you're looking if at if we so think it's so you, worth yeah, that. Exactly. We're not going to pay what the market says it's sometimes, worth at the moment. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And sometimes the share price is under what you yeah. think it's worth, and that's obviously the time to really, you know, to to really pile in. Yeah. Back then, what made you think that firstly Australia needed another? Fund when you sorry when you went out and started IML. Mm. Firstly, that Australia needed another fund uh, manager, and secondly, that people would back you. Good question. And look, sometimes I, I wonder whether I was you know fully one hundred percent when I did it. But <laughs> uh, you know, in those days, again, Helen, I, I, I think one of the interesting things I'd have to note about when I look back at the industry of the last. 20 or 30 years is, is um, you know, how many names have disappeared. So when I started at in the industry in 1988, you know, there was Prudential, there was National Mutual, there was Zurich, there was Legal and General, there was Colonial, you know, they've all disappeared. Yeah. Um, Equity Link. I mean, Equity Link, you know. Trade and Robot, whatever, you know, they, they all disappeared. Uh, Ten years later when I set so up true. IML, there were uh, different names. Uh, there was Merrill Lynch, BT, Rothschilds. Um, boutiques were not that common in those days. There was only really Maple Brown Abbott and Platinum who were boutiques. And um, I don't, I'm not sure why I thought it would it would work, but I, I knew a couple of clients who'd, who'd invested with me over the years. They said they would support it, uh, so that helped. Um, and, yeah, I thought, yeah, look, let, let's do it because um, – you know, there's, it's a forever changing world. And as I said, when I started off at uh, Perpetual, all those names, you know, Prudential, Legal and General, Scottish, and they've all disappeared. When yeah. I started IML in 98, you know, there was Merrill Lynch, yeah. BT, Rothschilds, Colonial, oh. all gone. Where are they? Yeah. Where, you know, incredible. So it is a very dynamic industry. It is a bit of a survival of the fittest, you know, and and, and I just thought a good value fund, you know, that just did equities, pure equities, uh, stuck to that, had a very strong philosophy, you know, hopefully it will succeed. Yeah, so those first couple of uh, investors, we'll call them that, yeah. so they're supporters yeah. who said, yes, you can have my money. Do yeah. you remember what they asked back of you or what you promised them? No, to be honest, again, Helen, I, I, I was looking um I was looking to join another fund manager, this is what happened, and, and I went to see one of the clients and said, listen, I'm gonna leave um uh, BNP, was it? BNP to join this other fund manager. And they said, No, mate, listen, we've been with you over the years. If you're gonna do something now, you, you, we're only gonna back you if you set up your own thing. Wow. 
And I thought, oh, again, right, wow, that's fabulous. I thought, oh, well, that's sort of good. It's 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 well, it's bad bush. because I've already sort of talked to this other company and almost signed. Well, I had signed actually. I was going to join them, but it was fantastic because they gave me that opportunity. Yeah. So yeah. that's and, how it happened. And really, probably gave you a lot more confidence to say, oh, well, if they're willing to back me, exactly. I'm going to back myself. Exactly, exactly. Look, look, and, and and the truth is, and look, I'm not the only fund manager who's said this, I'm sure. And, and you know, when, when you work for a large organization, um, you know, whether it's perpetual or county, they, they always try and say it's the brand that's attracting the money. And you go, well, it's not just the brand, mate. It's sort of the people behind the fund who are the, Has the important the ones. But when you work for a large organization, they try and say it's the brand, right? So there's always a bit of that sort of, well, and, and, and I guess they're trying to protect themselves from, you know, like Paul Scambolgis has just left perpetual. Exactly. You know, and I left perpetual. Peter Morgan left perpetual. So when that whatever. happens, that protection, I mean, it's you can understand lost. their yeah. point of view. Their protection is to say it's the brand, it's you a team of people. Yeah. It's not Peter Morgan. It's yeah. not John Sever. It's not Anton Taliaferro. It's the brand. Yeah. So, so that's sort of, you know, there's always a little bit of, um, I guess, tension, you know, regarding how important you as an individual are versus the brand. Did you ever come to a point where you knew, I'm a pretty good stock picker? Well, I, I guess I, I was, you know, I, I built a, a pretty good track record of Perpetual. You know, BMP had done really well as well. And, and I was, again, in this sort of, I don't want to say argument, but this sort of thing about, oh, yeah, mate, but, uh, you know, uh, you you don't deserve much equity or you don't deserve it because it's the name, you know, it's the bank name. Right, you know, well, it's not you doing it. It's not yeah. quite right, you know, like, I, I, and it's not about greed, whatever. It's just about being given... Um, you know, a bit of the priority or whatever it is to sort of, yeah. Yeah, so you're saying, sorry, even internally, um, those companies were so busy saying that it's our brand that's doing this. They were saying that to their outside customers, um, but they weren't perhaps recognising internally the people who were really making it happen and either giving you the recompense or the accolade or the power or whatever, well, the recognition. recognition. I think. Yeah. And, and I think, look, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm the first person where it's happened and I won't be the last. So that, that's what tends to happen at large organisations. Yeah. You think, well, it's not the brand, you know, it's the it's the people behind the brand, it's the philosophy that matters, you know, and that's sort of, I guess, one of the reasons I wanted to set up Iron as well. So it wasn't just money, it wasn't because I wanted more money, it's more that recognition and respect or mm. it's recognition, mm. I think, you know, because mm. it's, it's quite frustrating, isn't it, if you have a fund that's doing well. Like at Perpetual, for example, just using and Paul Scambolgis, and Perpetual says, "Oh, it's the philosophy; it's the hundred-year-old company." Well, yes, that that has some sort of bearing as well. But but then the people behind the fund, you know, they're the ones who who really deliver. You know, whatever yeah. the fund's delivering, that that's the reality. Yeah, the I guess your idea was back then to um really manage investing in high quality companies with what you considered good strong management teams that sort of thing has that strategy basically stayed the same for you it has it has and look it's been it's been tough sometimes i mean obviously when we started iml when i started iml in 98 you know the tech boom was on so it was you know pretty difficult and in the last few years again it's all been you know the wise techs and oh, the mega ports and the whatever you know zip little and the american Big tech stocks. Well, the, the, at least they're not in your index. But in Australia, you know, you've had all these 
quite, um, you know, speculative yeah. sort of companies that yeah. have done well. And that's, I mean, one of the reasons our performance has lagged, you know, the last few years is because we, we're not sort of, we don't back growthy and in inverted commas speculative companies. Yeah, and, and of course, and sorry, done... you, you only invest in Australian equities. Yes. So I mentioned those US yes. big stocks. They, they were never on your radar. No, unfortunately. And why not? Well, because that's how the industry works. You know, you have specialists, equity, different specialists in different areas. So, you know, Investors Mutual is always set up as an Australian equity specialist. And then other companies like Platinum do overseas or Magellan, whatever, do overseas equities. So that's sort of, that's how the industry works. So, Anton, what do you reckon is your secret sauce? Um, look, I, I think it's been about, um, you know, obviously, you know, hard work, I think, and, and um, always having the, the, you know, sticking to the philosophy, a philosophy which people understand. I mean, I always, I, I tell our marketing people as well, you know, the, the, our industries, it's not so much, I mean, people talk about the returns and this and that and whatever, but the, the key is trust. Mm. You must have people's trust, you know, and the, the only reason, the only way, you will get people's trust and keep it over the years is if you if you do what you say you know so never never deviate from what you say you're doing even if it means the performance isn't good or not at, at the moment or you know you're taking it a bit on the chin because you're not in favor but at least if you do what you say you're going to do you know i think that that's where you, how you build trust yeah so as people will understand if you don't perform well if you know tech stocks are Specky tech stocks are booming or lithium stocks are booming because you're sticking to Brambles, Amcor, Woolworths, Horizon or whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, people understand that. And yeah. I think that's the key is to have a, you know, a philosophy that's uh, very recognizable, that makes sense, that people can understand and that you have to stick to it. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's the key. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of fund managers, and I've seen it over the years, you know, when things are not going well, they'll tend to switch because they go, you know, gosh, shit, when, performance yeah. isn't good. We better buy a whole bunch of lithium stocks or oil stocks or whatever because we're lagging the index. And that's 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 a dangerous thing to do. Because We're going to get into yeah. some companies and okay. sectors that you like or don't like a little bit later. But back when you started, you were a startup. I mean, we didn't call them really yeah. that in the uh, 90s, yeah. really. But how did you get traction? You, you started with those few customers, yeah. clients who had said, we're going to back you. How did you cut through? Well, then obviously it took a lot of, um, you know, running around, talking to, and we were going more for the retail market, you know, to yeah. buy our financial planners. So it was more about going out there, talking to different financial planners, you know, explaining to them the philosophy, yeah. what we were investing in, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, at the time, you know, the tech boom was on, so we were looking pretty, you know, pretty bad. And, yeah. and people were sort of telling me things like, you, you, you don't get it, mate, you know, the whole the world's changed and whatever. And it's uh, all the action now is in OneTel and Davnet and Solution 6 or whatever. And um, <laughs> and I go, no, sorry, I, you know, uh, you know, we still prefer Brambles and Amcor and Woolworths, right? And people going, listen, mate, you, you don't get it, right? You yeah. just don't get it. So, and, and that was tough. But but you stuck with it. We did. Why we did. do you think you well, did because that? You just didn't trust those Because, other? again, Helen, when, when you looked at the valuation, I remember doing a comparison of OneTel versus, you know, Amcor and, and looking at the you know the profits that Amcor generated and and what the market was valuing it 
versus OneTel, which was losing 300 million, and you know it was valued at two or three times what Amcor was. And you sort of tried to explain to people, look, Amcor's been going for a thousand years. Okay, it's boring, whatever, but it makes money, it pays dividends, you know, and 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 it's coming down because everyone's buying this other stuff. Uh, whereas this other stuff, you know, your OneTel, your Davnet, they don't make any money. And again, people would argue with you. I remember there was a girl in Melbourne. I gave her. She walked out. You know, she said, "You're not valuing one tell right." I said, "Well, I'm just looking at profits and whatever. Right? That's all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything kind of." Fancy. And she walked out. So, so it wasn't. It it sounds easy with hindsight, but at the time, people were sort of questioning it. You know, yeah. that you should. Oh no, I'm sure you know. it was tough. That's why yeah. I'm wondering how you did cut through. Mm. Was it this idea that well, that perhaps the conservatives certainly once the tech wreck happened in 2002, you would have been vindicated to a huge degree. And and again, Helen, um, in those days, the the major major competitors in retail, which is what we were targeting, was, you know, BT, which had their imputation fund, which was full of Davnet and OneTel and whatever, uh, was Colonial, which again had backed a lot of those things like E-Corp, whatever, you know, Merrill Lynch, whatever, and, and a lot of the retail money in those days, that's what, that they were getting all the flows, those funds. So, of right. course, when the tech crash happened and, you know, they performed very poorly and, you know, we performed quite well and people said, why? And Well, because we've backed, you know, companies which we believe make sense, right? And they yeah. thought, well, there you go. That's that's. So suddenly we became very, you know, in favour. In fashion, yeah, yes. In fashion and, and but what, you were able we, what to then we were capitalize. doing, what we were doing and saying we were doing made sense. Yeah. So, yeah, so that sort of, the tech boom was tough, but it sort of made IML as well. Just still going back when you first started IML, IML, what sort of funding did you have in the beginning? You obviously had had a career by then, so you weren't, um, you know, a twenty-year-old. Uh, did you borrow? Did you have substantial savings of your no, own? No, it wasn't did substantial. You... No, it wasn't substantial. We had a very small office in Bly Street. It was almost a little corner, you know. And uh, no, it was pretty treadbare funding. And I took, I, I took a, you know, massive pay cut from. Uh, where I was before to start your own thing, which is fine because I really wanted to do it. And uh, yeah, no, no, we weren't sort of huge. You know, we didn't have huge funds, whatever. But uh, but I guess if you keep your overheads tight in those early yeah. days, maybe don't pay yourself that much. But you're getting funds in from customers. You then invest and get a return, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it grows from there. Yeah, well, that's what that's always been my philosophy. Actually, in business, is 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 start small and then grow as you see some success coming into the door. You know, a lot of people will, will do the opposite. They'll build it big and hope the money comes. I've been the opposite way around. I always thought start small, keep it modest and humble, and let's see if we get some traction, you know, let's see if we can attract some customers. Yeah. And then as we get customers, then we can sort of expand a little bit. Yeah. IML, as we've been discussing, is known for its more conservative investment style with a long-term focus. And you say online that it aims to deliver consistent returns. Why do you think you've taken that more conservative line? I know we've talked a little bit at the beginning, but okay. The, the other the other thing I think, Helen, which is important, is is um, in funds management, and I I, I recognise this because I moved from perpetual, which was purely retail. I went to work for County NatWest in Melbourne, which was totally institutional. Institutional, yeah, and. They're very different markets because the institutional market tends to be obsessed with benchmarks, whereas the retail market, their only benchmark is do you, 
Is it- can you make me money when markets are up and can you not lose me too much money when markets go down? So, you know, and I remember- can you protect my capital? Well, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I remember when I went to work for County and they just launched into the retail market and in one quarter, I think it was September 1992 or whatever it was, mm-hmm. uh, the Aussie market was down 9% for the quarter and the County NatWest fund was down 6.5%. So, you know, they were writing their quarterly report and they said, you know, the Australian ground has had a very good quarter, down 6.5%, you know. Meaning we're so good because the market has gone down even further. Exactly. We've still lost your money, but uh, but, don't worry about it. But that's the institutional. The institutional money understands that. They go, you've outperformed by 250 basis points. Well done. But in retail, you can't can never say, yeah. "Listen, mate, I've done a really good job for you because I've only lost you six and a half percent of your capital in a quarter." Right? You you have to almost apologise, yeah, and say, "Listen, I'm sorry. Like we had a disappointing quarter, yeah. but it's better than what the index did." You understand? Right. So yeah, there's yeah. a there's a completely, and I think one of the, you know, things that often people and I still see this in funds management now. People try to sell institutional products to the retail market, and and you know, the retail market, you can talk all day about indexes and benchmarks, whatever, but their, but their benchmark is very simple. It's Their own bank account. Well, make me money when markets yeah. are up. Don't lose me too much when, when markets are down. And it'd be great if I got an income along the way as well. I'm know? still interested in this idea. There were plenty of competitors. Uh, there were sort of lots of people around the world, but certainly here, that were doing what you were doing. How did you differentiate your product in a sense, because you still had competition, you still have to differentiate your product from the next guy. Yes, Helen, but again, we had a very sort of strict philosophy which we was going, to, which we were sticking to. And yeah. at the time, as I said, the technology boom was on, so we looked very different from all these competitors, very, very different. Which for a while was, you know, quite painful because they were all chasing NewScorp, which, by the way, got to eighteen percent of the all odds. I don't remember NewScorp got to eighteen percent of the all odds. Wow, uh, we had zero in NewScorp. You know, well, because yeah, yeah. when when um, America Online bid for Time Warner. Yes. Newscorp went ballistic because right. Newscorp had the yes. content and everyone yes. thought Yahoo oh, or someone's right. going to yeah. bid for Newscorp. So yep. it sort of went from $12 to 18 and quick. And it was 18% of the index. And we missed all that. And like our returns relative to the index again were looking, you know, terrible. And a lot of the managers, again, at the time were charging into Newscorp because it became such a big part of the index and they were worried it was going to keep running. And we sort of looked and said, look, we've missed it. It's too expensive. And yeah, so in a way, yes, there were a lot of competitors, but because, you know, as I said, the tech boom, a lot of them were sort of switching and and chasing the, you know, like at at times, Helen, the the noise is very, you know, it's it's very loud. The noise of, you know, the... The world has changed, you know, um, Amcor is old economy, Woolworths is old economy. It's all about e-shop and e-pets and e-corp and e-whatever. And <laughs> everywhere you went, everything yeah. you read, all the media was talking like that, right? So it was, <laughs> yeah. Hard to hold your nerve it in, was, in a it sense. It was a little yeah. bit hard. In fact, I, 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 I mean, I used to go down to the aquarium. I think I've, I don't know if you've heard No, you haven't. So, no, I don't have So when, when you know, we were at IML and we had 200 million on the management or something and 
I remember a client pulled out his 20 million because, you know, we were lagging the index. We were looking pretty bad. And, you know, I had staff, only two or three of them, but they were asking, you know, what are we going to do, boss? Like, we're missing out on the, the whole boom. What are we going to do? And I used to say, oh, don't worry. We're on the right track. You know, just stick to our guns. We'll be right. But in, inside me, I was thinking, Churning. shit, what if I'm wrong? You know, what, what if I am wrong? So I actually used to go down to the aquarium at lunchtime. I bought a Sydney Aquarium Pass for 12 months, and I used to go down and look at the fish and kind of think, wow, I mean, you know, and sort of sort of talk to myself, you know, am core Woolworths, Brambles, are they really all old economies sort of going to zero? And is the world really all about e-corp and DAFNET? And see, no, no, it's fine. I'm sure it'll be fine sort of thing. So I had to sort of convince myself, yeah. you know, a bit because it was hard because you had pressure from clients, the media was full of the noise, and staff, you know, the few staff I had were sort of asking, what are we going to do? Our performances. Yeah. Performance stinks. <laughs> Our clients want to pull their money out. What should we do? And of course, I had to say, we stick to what we do. But you know, you had that little inkling of doubt now and then, you know. For sure. Anton, what do you think you might have brought from those other employers, the big companies, with you to IML? Yeah, good question again. But um, I, I guess, you know, I learned a perpetual that perpetual was interesting because when I joined, it was as I said, an internal fund. We didn't even know what an index or a benchmark was, actually. We we just looked after money. You know, I recruited Peter Morgan. He was a chartered accountant too, by the way. Oh, We'd worked really? together was at Deloitte. That's why I knew him from Another Deloitte. brilliant stock picker. Yeah, he was from Deloitte. Well known. And I really? brought him on board and we used to look at stocks and go, oh, yeah, that one's all right. What do you reckon, Pete? Yeah, okay, let's buy some. We, we'd sort of never seen Said, oh, what's the index rate? Or should we go, you know? So it was very much stock picking. Yeah. When I went to county, which was all institutional, it was almost the opposite. It was sort of, oh, what, what is MIMs of the index? Oh, 1%. Well, should we be totally out of it or half benchmark or something or double index weight or so, yeah. you know? Yeah. And kind of I saw two very different styles, you know, of investing. And when I sort of put IML together, I thought, well, you need uh, more or less we want to have the perpetual type thing, but you've also got to be a little bit aware of the index, you know, because that's that's what everybody compares you to. So when you don't perform well, you know, understand why you haven't performed well. Is it is it because your stock picking's been wrong? Or is it because parts of the index that are going crazy are bits you can't invest in? For example, now, you know, all the lithium stocks or yeah. the tech stocks yeah. or whatever. Well, you when as a value investor, when you look at those things and you go, how sustainable are the earnings? Well, A, do they have any earnings, you know? And B, if they have any earnings, how sustainable are those earnings for the next two to three years, right? So they might be exciting and look good today, but you think, well, that's not going to last. So you may not buy it. Whereas, you know, the more solid companies, you know, there is more that continuity recurring nature of their earnings. You talked about the tech boom years of the late 90s, early 2000s, before the tech wreck, being fairly painful. How much of a struggle were those first few years or first five years or 10 years even? Were uh, they of a IML? struggle? Yeah, oh, IML. yeah, really tough, very tough. I mean, I, I, I wondered whether I'd done the right thing, to be honest, because, you know, I'd gone out, had this conservative philosophy, you know, buy stocks with competitive, um, it's still the same thing, competitive advantage, recurring earnings, good management, and nobody seemed to, you know, want to know about those things, right? So it, it was quite tough, but it was good. It was a great thing to go through. And, of course, as I said, when the tech boom evaporated, right, and became a tech wreck, 
uh, suddenly, you know, your AMCORs and your AGL in those days and your brambles, you know, they kind of went up when the rest of the market fell. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Actually. Yeah. Did you always amazing. did you always have a big vision for IML or was it just, oh, we'll just try this. I just want to do my own thing. It'll be a little fun. If we get $100 million, wow, that would be fab. Yeah. Yeah, no, I didn't have a big vision, no. no really? I, no, I thought if we got, could get a few hundred million and, you know, have a nice little fund, whatever, and, uh, yeah, no, I never thought it would get to. To be honest, Helen, I never thought, I mean, I I did. I wasn't thinking, like, it'll still be there, in, will it still be there in 25 years or how big can we get or whatever. I, I, I wasn't thinking sort of like that. I thought we, we got there and we could raise a few hundred million and do, you know, reasonably well for clients and, you know, have a close relationship with clients. They know what we do. They know why we, they've got us in their portfolio, et cetera. That was the, that was the vision, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Extraordinary. Uh, and when you were building this up and it was still a bit of a struggle, was there one crucial step or decision that was a game changer? Look, I think um, <laughs> at the time, um, Investors Mutual, I'd started the business actually with a, a, a guy called Otto Batula, who Was he a co-founder? or He was did- a co-founder, yes. But she wasn't a very good partner, and um, he had an interest in a company called InvestorWeb, which he wanted to list on the stock market, and he did. And I was a little bit sort of upset because he was spending all his time on InvestorWeb and none on Investors Mutual, where he owned, you know, equity as much as I did. And um, I sort of one Sorry, day he did have as much equity as you. Yes, did. yes, yeah. we set it up sort of as sort of a fifty-fifty type thing. And uh, but he was spending, you know, most of his time on Investor Web, yeah. and he was going to go. He was listing it, and I told him one day. I said, "Listen, Otto, we can't. You know, it's not fair on me because you know this is my baby. You sort of got equity in my thing. You've got your own thing. Uh, what are we going to Cheers. do?" So he sort of said, "Oh, let's merge them." So for for a little bit of time there, Investors Mutual was part of Investor Web, which listed on the stock market. Right. And, I don't um, remember that. Yes, did, I know. How I know. did that go? Well, obviously the Investor Web share price. So I I, <laughs> I swapped my Investors Mutual shares for Investor Web stock. You know, so I got thirty five million shares in Investor Web, and it listed, and the shares went to a dollar, a dollar twenty, because the tech boom, right? Couldn't sell any of my shares, and unfortunately, a lot of people. Which added pressure. A lot of clients were saying, "Oh, you see, mate, because you've made so much money on your investor web stock, you don't care about our funds." And I sort of had to explain, "No, actually, it's because investor web's gone so stupid, and companies like that are going so stupid, is why we're performing so badly." So it was very difficult. So I think the second, the very good decision I made was to get out of investor web, to leave investor web, do a swap of my shares for Investors Mutual, um, and then join with Treasury Group. Who took fifty percent of Investors Mutual, right? And that really helped because they, at the time, Treasury Group had recruited Rodney Green, who was the investment uh, director at Perpetual. So Rodney came on board just as we were, you know, the performance had just turned around. Rodney had a lot of credibility from his days at Perpetual, mm-hmm. and that really helped us in terms of going to the the next level. After challenging ups and downs in getting established. 
In part two of our chat next time, Investors Mutual co-founder Anton Taliaferro reveals his take on the new higher interest rate landscape for investors, what companies and sectors he likes and doesn't like, where soccer in this country has gone wrong, and he also crucially reveals how he survived some of the worst financial crises of the past two decades. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.